this is how I was born. I can't change the fact that I'm, you know, of Korean descent. Sam, welcome to POVs. I have been following your journey ever since we first connected on Clubhouse. Oh. <laughs> Throwback, Clubhouse. <laughs> I so admire you for all the amazing things you're doing in this world to use your voice, which is what we're all about here at The Conversationalist. So thank you for being here. I'm super excited. Um, just wanna, I don't know, just have these conversations so that we can really start to think and try to get to a place where we need to be. Amen to that. So I'm happy we can start here on the couch. And as you know, every episode here on POVs, we start off with somewhat of an interesting thought-provoking question. So you ready to get started? Let's do it. Can we separate the personal from the political? Yes and no. Number one, I think yes in the sense of everything that we do is political, whether you acknowledge it or not. Therefore, it is personal. But there are also times when you are trying to analyze and be objective about what is happening to be able to accurately understand like what just transpired. And in that, in that case, you do have to take a 50 foot thousand point view and remove the personal from it, even though it's always going to be attached and be personal in that way. Do you feel like there was a time where you could separate it more and nowadays it's intertwined or has the personal always been synonymous with the political? In many ways, we denied it for a lot of a lot of years. A lot of that has to do with who is in power, who is controlling the narrative, who is holding onto the gavel. And therefore, a lot of the personal that was impacting the most a lot of people in this country was not actually being represented and voiced mm. um, in the political world. So I think that's where that comes in. I love that you said that everything we do nowadays is or feels political. What does that look like to you? What do you feel are parts of your life that are inherently political that maybe someone would perceive as personal? I think even just my my existence in politics, like as I was growing up, I just didn't see anyone that looked like me that felt like me in politics. I mean, we had the late, you know, and, and legendary Norman Mineta, who you know recently passed away. But there weren't a lot of names that came to mind. I think that in and of itself, like my existence is political activism. I was the only Asian American that was a staff member in the main, like kind of like three tri triangular yeah, people power. Yeah, pillars, pillars of power. You had the governor's speaker of the house and Senate president. Wow. And I was 23. I was a junior staffer, no power. But the fact that I was there, I was able to talk to the speaker about the issues of the API community. How do you feel like that experience growing up led you down this path of activism and politics? It heavily influenced me. I think that that feeling of not being seen and understood and discriminated for because of literally who I was born as, right? Like, this is how I was born. I can't change the fact that I'm, you know, of Korean descent. Like, that's just something that like, yeah. for so long I'm sitting there like, why are you, you know, shitting on me for being Korean. Ever since then, it's been that, you know, unlearning and unpacking, relearning. And so for me, it's like, if I went through that, I don't want anybody else to experience that. That's why, to me, it's been important to be vulnerable about my story, because my story isn't exceptional. It's the story of millions of people. And if I can influence and impact one person, then that was worth it. That resonates so deeply. <laughs> more than you know. <laughs> and when do you think you first were aware that you were different from a lot of your peers? And what did that discrimination look like and feel like to you growing up? You know, whether it was, you know, small dick jokes, small eye jokes. I remember in high school, I almost won best eyes. When it's about your identity and about your worth and who you are and someone's degrading you, that is a completely different feeling. And especially when you're a kid still trying to figure out who you are and then especially as a as a dude where we're taught to be you know this 
this machismo and like as men we're told that's where our worth is but then anytime that you try to display that then it's just it gets disqualified because i'm asian all those things like you you don't realize like how toxic it is yeah. until you get older and then oh you start God. to relearn yeah and that's a whole other added layer too when you think back to those moments where people were making jokes or things were happening to you, do you feel like you were aware? Or do you feel like you just laughed it off and then later in life unpacked the suitcase? I think I did a mixture of like everything. I tried laughing it off. I tried, you know, punch people in the face. I tried, you know, arguing back. I was one that was being, you know, the target of racial abuse. And I, re I re retaliated, but I was the one to get in trouble. The kids who were being racist, nothing happened to them. Mm -hmm. They got a slap on the wrist. Oh, don't say that again. But Sam, you threw the punch. So you gotta go home. I can't put myself completely in your shoes, but I can only understand that that probably still comes up in different areas of your life later on. But it seems like you've now woken up to the realities of what those moments were in your childhood. I think you highlighted kind of what I see that's going on in our country right now and so much of why I started this, right? We were talking a little bit beforehand about the importance of dialogue and how nowadays there's so much room for misunderstanding that it's hard to actually have a dialogue. So how have you been able to navigate that in your own journey of being an activist? How can we better create understanding when it seems like the default is misunderstanding? It's been challenging. I've made my mistakes along the way. You know, going back to Clubhouse, um, I remember specifically there was a room that I held. It was for API folks to come and tell their stories. So it went on for like nine hours. Um, there were so many people just going up on stage. Wow telling their stories and a lot of people were crying and it was really, really powerful. And one thing that stuck to me the most was like the amount of people that said that they had never felt community before. They'd never felt like they were able to tell their story and be heard mm -hmm. and felt, felt like they were heard. And then the room, um, there were folks who came in who were Pacific Islanders, who were South Asian, um, Southeast Asian, some queer folks. And they called the room violent. What they were saying was, you have up here AAPI, but everybody in here is East Asian. Where is the space for us? Mm. It wasn't that I would like I was trying to keep folks away, but it's how do you create a room in a in, in a community in the first place that folks feel like not only comfortable but welcome to come and join. It's that learning process of like how do you create a, a space where everybody feels included. And also that misunderstanding doesn't happen. And moderating those discussions is really challenging. But that's what I like to call an echo chamber breaking moment. I feel like when you realize that there were people who still felt alienated by a space that you had built for a lot of people to share their experiences, it opened you up to a different perspective that you probably weren't even aware of. So that probably created growth and learning and awareness that a lot of people I feel nowadays don't have because we're so trapped in our silos. Mm -hmm. What do you think people are missing about the value of these conversations? There are a lot of people out there right now that really don't believe we should even be having conversations like this. What do you think people are missing? I think part of it is we're, we're jumping to conversations that people aren't ready for. What I mean by that is like, are you at a place right now in your life where you're able to hear a different perspective, one that contrasts your worldview that doesn't destroy your entire, you know, life. You know, folks that are out there that their their pain, their trauma, their hurt doesn't allow them to be able to hear a different perspective as to what they believe is true because their entire like reality is built on that. So if you're contrasting it and saying that they're wrong, being wrong feels like an attack on them as opposed to if you're 
in a healthy place, you're in a place where you've healed. When someone presents you with a different point of view that shows that you were wrong about a, a perspective that you held, you're probably more likely to be able to understand it and digest it and, and, and consider it. We're trying to do this on the internet as opposed to like this, yeah. where you can actually have that tonal context, when you can actually be able to feel the emotions and see someone's face. and Or even take the time to process beforehand. Exactly. I feel like even in the depths of TikTok, if someone posts something incendiary or inflammatory, it's typically a way of venting. Being here with you, I can understand much more your breadth of emotions and the reasons as to why you got here and what made you you. I feel like we're not having these conversations in the way that they were always meant to be had. Yeah. And I think that's why it's diluting their value. Yeah, and, and there was a point, um, you know, one of my favorite creators, Maddie Park, she was telling me about a conversation she had with someone. And this person, that person made a really good point. It was like, back in the day, when you want to send hate mail, you have to go, you know, get a stamp, actually handwrite the letter, put it in the envelope, lick the envelope, go and, and drop it off at the mail, mailbox. Wait for the person to get it. It could Wait. be days, it could be weeks. Exactly. And, they, and like, how do you know you're gonna get a response? Now, it's free 99. You go on, you make a, you know, a anonymous profile and you talk all the shit that you want and there's no re repercussion for it. Yeah. And you get that attention that you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so grateful that we both agree that conversations need to be had. But going back to the people out there that may not be ready to have them, what would you say to someone who's questioning whether to have that conversation? What advice would you have? To look in the mirror with themselves. Am I ready to have this conversation? Am I ready to deal with the ramifications of having that conversation? If you're not, it's okay not to. We should be uncomfortable and challenge ourselves and make sure that we're pushing ourselves in ways to be able to get better because nobody is perfect. I think the most important thing is being able to look yourself in the mirror and be honest with yourself. Um, about the conversation you're trying to hold and have. Absolutely. And are there any conversations that you think should be completely off the table? I mean, honestly, at this point, like if, if you're advocating for anything that is discriminatory towards anybody, you know, for instance, right now, um, the women's right to choose, right? Like if you're trying to strip women's bodily autonomy, like, no, that's that's a non-starter for me. You gotta go back to square one. <laughs> yeah, I hear you, I hear you. Especially those bigger issues, they get more and more complex, mm -hmm. especially as they become more high stakes, right? Like the conversation around women's reproductive health and abortion is so relevant right now in our country. As someone who is personally very pro-choice, it's hard for me to have conversations with people who fall on the other side. How do we bring the country together if you think, for example, that conversation around the women's right to choose should be off the table? I guess like I should probably like, it's not that it's off the table. Like we should be talking about my, my, for me, it's more of how we have these conversations are really important, especially when there's a lot on the line and the repercussions and ramifications of it are really high. One of the biggest things I believe in when it comes to conversation is that we have to always introduce new perspectives, right? And hear from people outside of even our own bubbles. So Sam, I want to take us to the segment here on POVs where we introduce some POVs some perspectives from the larger Gen Z community. You ready? Love it. Let's, Let's do, it. do it. So keep an eye on your phone. We're going to send you some texts and then you're going to read them out loud and react. Sounds good. Let's do it. If you only stand up for one community or are against only one form of hatred, your activism is pointless. I think you can prioritize, like you can absolutely care about your, your community more, but I think it is intersectional. We collectively as a group have to come together and eradicate any form of oppression or hatred. But at the same time, I would never fault anybody for fighting for their community specifically. Absolutely, I agree. I hear you. Yeah, intersectionality is a topic that we talk about a lot here on the show because I, I do agree in order to stand up against one form of hatred, 
you need to ha stand up against other forms of hatred. Yeah. What would you say to someone who disagrees with the premise of intersectionality and thinks that it could be harmful? I would ask them to unpack that. I would ask them to, to ask yourself why you feel that way. The idea is being able to both celebrate our individuality while also elevating and promoting our togetherness. Totally. And I'm glad that you mentioned that we should still be able to advocate for our own community and stand up for things that are so tied and connected to us interpersonally, while also finding space and time to give voice to other communities as well. I'm an Asian American in a largely white suburb. I feel like I have to hide my culture to fit in school. How do I learn to be proud of my race when all I want to do is hide it? What are your thoughts? Oh man, um, this is deeply personal. I would say number one, lower your expectations of people responding in the way that you want them to. Don't have that expectation because the, their validation is not what determines your self-worth as who you are, your culture, your identity, your heritage. Number two, learn to find that worth and value in your identity, in being Asian American, on your own, for yourself. Learning the history, learning your, your family's um, heritage, learning your language, and learning like the history of, of how Asian Americans came to be and what it means to be Asian American. When you find and build that foundation for yourself and not for the validation and acceptance of others, then you're actually building it the right way. Don't try to get to that point of getting people to love you and, and accept you because you're relying on that to be able to build up your confidence because that's gonna fall down like a house of cards. But if you in fact are building it up and want to find that worth and value in yourself as an Asian American and be proud of that for yourself and you do it in a way that's going at the pace that you need it to heal, then I really do believe that down the road, as you continue to do that, your value and your love for yourself and the pride that you have as an Asian American is going to just be outwardly projected and people are gonna see it and they're gonna value it and it's gonna feel very different than if you try to do it for their validation. Thank you for sharing that, Sam. I know that person really needed to hear that today and even though I'm not an Asian American, I know I did too. So thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Bam Viagra, if pregnancy is God's will, then so is impotence. That is a spicy take. <laughs> okay, Sam, where do you stand? Um, when I heard that, I died. Like, to be totally honest, I was like, that's fair. I was watching one of your clips and I saw this guy saying like, you know, it's been so much harder for men now. I hear that. I, like, I don't want to invalidate it, but that to me is only thinking about it from the perspective of men and not from the perspective of folks who identify as women. If it was that easy for us, then that means it was harder for somebody else in this conversation that we're having about you know, bodily autonomy and women's right to choose. Men, we just generally have so much learning to do and we don't share that perspective of what, you know, it is like to have, go have a period, what it is to live um, as a woman in a patri patriarchal society. I want men who get really defensive about this conversation to take a step back and consider why are you getting so defensive? Mm -hmm. Why do you feel your heart getting tight? Right? Like, why do you feel your body getting tense, your butthole getting tight? Like, like, you know, like, why, like, ask yourself, like, why do you get that way? And then try to unpack it. And if we can do that, then we can have a real conversation afterwards, which is, okay, you felt this way. How do we actually move the ball forward? And how do we actually get to a society in which everybody feels that they can be their full selves and feel safe? Yeah. Starts with embracing that discomfort. I would be so curious to know what other people think when they hear that perspective. In a way, it really helped 
break my own echo chamber. Like I had never considered that before. Mm -hmm. And it made me uncomfortable in a way. But then when I started thinking about it, I became a little bit more comfortable with that discomfort. And I think that's what it's all about. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Everyone has privilege. Privilege. There, I said it. Yeah, what's your take? Yes and no, but there's degrees to it. In certain instances, certain situations, uh, there are going to be instances where people have more privilege than others. There are people that overall, holistically, carry a lot more privilege. That's something that I've also tried to look into and think about from my own end. It's like when I walk into spaces, you know, in this country, I can pretty much walk into any space. That wouldn't have been true 50, 60 years ago. So I think that varies and changes, but I think the way that that was said though, that's the part that I want to push back on because that to me is saying, oh, I don't have white privilege. The tone of how that was said is very different. And that's why I want to push back and be like, that's why the no is coming from is saying that no, it's not an equal level playing field. Is that yes, in certain instances, we do have degrees of privilege, but overall there are people who have a far less than other people just because of how they're born. Okay, there are some bad people out there is it just me or do some people really deserve hate for who they are? You know, I think about this a lot, right? Um, and this goes back to, you know, us living in a carceral system and us living in, you know, black and white of like good and bad and good versus evil. Yes, there are people that are very bad. For my own self, can't get myself to believe that somebody is irredeemable. I think about the movie, everything, everywhere and everything all at once. And the idea of holding onto hope, it's not from being naive, it's a way of survival. Believing in a better future, believing that we can be better, believing that we can build a world where everybody feels safe and loved and valued. Holding onto that is a way of continuing to have fight for that, that world in a world that, that is consistently telling us and showing us that we're nowhere near it. I think it's important to hold onto that, not as you know being delusional or naive, but rather being able to continue to feed yourself the energy and the willpower to continue to keep pushing and fighting for that world. Absolutely. I have yet to see that movie. I've heard it's amazing. Incredible. Oh my gosh, I've had multiple people tell me it was like their favorite movie they've ever seen. I love what you said. Like that's how we have to build that world, right? And that's where it starts. And we have to push our own belief system on whether it is just good and evil. Where is the in-between? Where is that nuance? So thank you for bringing that up. Sam, drop a hot take. What do you got? Boston is better than New York. Wow. I don't disagree. I don't fully agree, but hey, tell me more. I'm just gonna bring, you know, uh, the summer's difference between Boston and New York into play. In Boston, it doesn't stink, smell like uh, sewage and, and piss everywhere you walk every single day and it doesn't follow you around. In New York, it concept. is unbearable. In Boston, we, you know, over the past 20 years, we won more championships than New York has. Uh, even though New York has more professional teams, we have a much better mayor. Uh, in Michelle Wu. All due respect to New York. Most of my family grew up in New York and Queens. Shout out Queens, but Boston's better. It's a pretty decent list. I can't argue with you there. Interested to hear what people have to say. There are a lot of New York fanatics. Oh, they're gonna be pissed. Fanatics. Oh, they're gonna be pissed. <laughs> but again, like what is that sparking in that person that makes them upset, yeah. right? Like, well, I, I attacked their home, you know? <laughs> so I came out into your doorstep and I basically told you that your house sucks. So, <laughs> but I love Boston. I hope I can visit soon. And I'm happy that you're here in New York being on the show, Sam. Before you go, we're a platform for Gen Z, really uplifting the voices of the next generation. What is one message that you would want to share with all of Gen Z if you had a megaphone that could reach everyone right now? Um, if I have a message for 
for Gen Z, it's don't just think about the short game, think about the long game, especially with elections coming up, especially as we're thinking about um, how we're going to change and build the future of, of America. Don't forget to include um, the older generations of people that are paved the way because they're going to give you wisdom of actually how to create that change. That's going to add on to the innovative ways that, that Gen Z is doing it now. And so when you merge the two together, Gen Z is going to be really, really powerful. Now, here's the other thing too, is don't feel that the weight of change is completely on the shoulders of Gen Z. I think a lot of Gen Z feels that, yeah, I feel the where pressure. it's like, we have to be the ones to save the world. No, it's not true. Hold the uh, older generations accountable because as a millennial, uh, for the boomers, Gen, you know, Gen X, like we all have a responsibility to also um, contribute. We have to find a way to collaborate with one another. But at the same time, change doesn't happen like that, right? It's not, you can't just make a viral TikTok and change the world. But at the same time, I think Gen Z does have a lot of promise and, and is doing a lot of really cool shit. And it's been super cool to see the impact that Gen Z has made already. Absolutely. And what an awesome message to end on. I mean, our whole platform is geared towards this idea of unity. And you're right, we can't just have a collaboration or conversation between people of one way of life or one generation. We have to expand that, hold older generations accountable. And I think that's an amazing message to share with Gen Z. I want to make one final point too, Please. is, you know, we're talking about midterms and everybody's focused on, you know, the congressional races and you know what's going to happen in 2024 but don't also forget what's right in front of you which is down ballot races whether it's for a da whether it's for state representative state assembly members state senate um whether it's for you know your your municipal government make sure you're paying attention to those races make sure you get involved and the other thing too is start going to town meetings those are places where you can make an immediate impact and that's actually where the change begins and part of the reason why we live in this dysfunction is because young people aren't being involved and included in, in a local government, which actually controls what a lot of what happens in, in your life. So um, getting involved, get engaged, start going to town meetings, run for local office, don't overlook it, and make sure that you, you are, are paying attention and engaged with all elected positions and know who represents you. What a powerful message to end on. Got to get people to vote. So yeah. thank you for being on the show. Thank you for just being vulnerable and opening up about the experiences that have really led to your POV on the world. Thanks for being here. Appreciate you having me. Bring it in. Thanks, <laughs> Sam. So, you're awesome. Thank you. How do you feel? Likewise, I feel good. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to say that we left out? I don't know. I can't think of anything. I mean, same. I wish we would have talked a little bit more about voting and the midterms, but I think yeah. what you just shared at the end was like the perfect message to end on. I don't know how I feel about your hot take, but <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I feel like I feel like I'm gonna get a lot of a lot of heat for that. Okay, before you go, can yeah. we take a selfie? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Ready? One, two, three.